0: (laughs) All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, Welcome to episode eight of Chatting Cinema. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about um, some small budget filmmaking and what that means in Hollywood and some of our, I guess, some just small budget films that we've thought of. Yeah, favorite ones, ones that come to mind, sort of talking about what that entails, making a film with a small budget. Um, I'm Gianni. I'm Flynn. Uh, We're also going to talk today about Knives Out. Um, We'll get into spoilers, but we'll definitely warn you when we're getting to that point. And and then we're also going to give our first impressions on The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. Yep. So let's get right into it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So starting with small budget, I mean, a lot of,
1: you know, some of the best movies of the year, every year, end up being the the smaller budget movies. Um, Because when you think about independent film, that's a lot of times where some of the best films come from. And usually they're working with smaller studios or, or have to get backing other ways and don't really have like that big like established studio backing to uh, to help them pay for their movie and, and pay for everything they need. Yeah. Um, so one that came to mind, one of my favorite movies is uh, Whiplash, directed by Damien Chazelle. It was a short film at first and then Um, Damien made it a feature length film with, uh, Miles Teller and Whiplash is so good. Um, it's filled with so much effective tension, um, so many great performances. And the thing about it is it's, it's set in smaller locations, classrooms or houses, things of that nature. Um, and it's really performance driven. So you don't have to infuse it with that big budget. Um, and I think that, you know, again, speaking on why some of the best movies of the year, are typically smaller budget films um, is because sometimes you rely on those performances and that's when you get the strongest work out of actors is when they're carrying the movies. I mean, the lighthouse this year was another one where you're on location, you're in one setting for the entirety of the movie, um, not counting the, the boat that they take to get to the lighthouse and the Island. Um, and it's, sh- all Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe and you know it's slow it's slow
0: burning it's character driven um and that makes for a great movie yeah um one of my favorites uh made on a small kind of really shoestring budget is the Florida Project um directed by Sean Baker um starring Willem Dafoe Mm -hmm. so he's also in the lighthouse um and yeah it was made on a two million dollar budget so I mean, really, they had to cut so many corners. Right. But Sean Baker has really made a name for himself by making low-budget films. And I'm sure you know studios love that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and A24 has been such a, a supporter, a strong mm-hmm. supporter of low-budget filmmaking and indie filmmakers. Um, and Sean Baker made a name for himself with Tangerine, which yep. was shot entirely on iPhone 5s, mm-hmm. which is like, that's insane to yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so many movies often I feel like they become more popular also and they're seen more. If yeah. people hear that, like, oh, this was made with no money. You right, know? right. People kind of are interested by that um, to see what was made. Um, we were talking kind of off camera about other films like Get Out surprised mm-hmm. me that that was made on such a small budget, $4.5 million. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Jordan Peele uh, being able to, to, that was his directorial debut. Right. And, um, People, I remember the first trailer came out, and we were all thinking, like, "Oh, this looks good." Yeah, you know. Yeah, and you think about
1: Jordan Peele. I mean, you know, it's not—it's hard to imagine now yeah. with how he's established himself as a filmmaker. But coming off Keen Peele and 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 the sketch comedy that he did, at least in like the the mainstream zeitgeist, Jordan Peele was sort of thought of as one thing. So it's not hard to believe, and I believe Bloomhouse produced Get Out. Yeah. Um, but it's not hard to believe that a studio wouldn't cut the biggest check for jordan peele when he says look i want to do this horror movie even if he you know turns in a like a strong pitch and script and whatever it's not completely out of the realm of possibility when you're thinking about that place in time that a studio wouldn't say hey let's break the bank taking their risk on um somebody who's known as a comedian because i know like you mentioned when the trailer came out like that's why it was surprising to so many people that it looks so good because Jordan Peele was one thing to a lot of people. Um, and he turned around with get out and turned in something great. And I mean, moonlight also speaking to the a 24, the independent films, um, not a huge cast of characters, uh, story told in three parts. Um, not crazy on like settings or anything like that. Like very, um, like easy places to find filming locations for. Um, and, Moonlight's one of the best films of the decade. Yeah. Um it's a Best Picture winner and I think that sometimes like when you have these low budget pictures it it forces you to get creative and think outside the box. Um again one that we were sort of discussing off camera is the original Star Wars film. Yeah. Um you don't really think of Star Wars when you think of low budget. <laughs> um but forcing people to get creative sometimes yields the best results. If you think about that original Star Wars movie, like there's so much model work. Um, there's so much like matte paintings, so many matte paintings that serve as settings and serve as a, like a space location, something like that. Um, you think of Luke Skywalker's lightsaber from that movie is part of a, a camera. Um, it's called a, a Graphlex and they kind of just took that part and put rubberized grips on it. And, you know, they're they're mixing animal sounds to make the, the sounds for um, like tie fighters and things like that. And, and because they don't have necessarily all the money in the world to to use these things. And obviously, when you talk about the original Star Wars, part of the creativity comes from the limitations of the time um, as far as effects work go. But part of it for sure is is not having that ridiculous amount of money you need to
0: to do some of these things yeah absolutely i mean i think when people think of a low budget film the first thing that comes to their mind is like a horror movie right you know, a lot of horror movies even today are still made with just not a lot of money mm-hmm. and um but they don't think that like a hard-hitting drama right. can also be made on a, a really small budget and work really well you know and we mentioned indie films earlier um and there's so many that are out there that were made on you know, really small budgets, like one and a half million dollars for um submarine. Yeah. Um, things like that. Um so many, so many out there.
1: Yeah, A twenty four has been, you know, such a godsend as yeah. far as independent film and, and it's sort of mind boggling to think about all the films that have been produced by A twenty four in the past few years yeah. that are just like I mean, in my opinion, like instant classics. Right. Like films like Lady Bird like I I don't know what i do without A24. They make some <laughs> of my favorite movies every year. Um, and touching on the horror movies, it's interesting because that can sort of show the the downside of low-budget filmmaking when um, you're sort of taking advantage of that system. So, like, I think that a lot of mainstream horror movies come out every year. Think, like, the original Unfriended, movies like that. Where studios kind of like sit back and go, okay, we can take a couple million dollars, hire some, you know, college aged, maybe a little older actors that don't necessarily have any exposure, aren't really in a a place where they can bargain for um, a higher salary, pay them as low as we can, shoot it in the house, add some effects, um, and then sort of ship it out the weekend of Halloween make $50 million on opening weekend, and then that's that. And you don't put any creativity into the process. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the original Paranormal Activity is a fine example of a a good movie using that creativity and a a low budget because there's nothing – real. like, you don't have to pay for, like, any expensive effects. There's no character work. The actor should be unknown because it's supposed to be real people. And and Blair Witch Project is another one where, like, it's supposed to be real people, not actors. It's supposed to be found footage. But then you look at like sequels to films like this and, and films that are inspired by this. And
0: it almost lacks that creativity that we've been talking about that sort of makes low budget independent films so good. Yeah. And it's funny that in movies like Paranormal Activity and Blair Witch, like you almost you have the actors holding the camera a right. lot of the time. So yeah. you already eliminate the cost of uh, of a cinematographer. Right. Um, anyway, uh, a film that was made on a really shoestring budget directed by Ryan Johnson is Brick, mm-hmm. kind of the Neo Noir film starring Joseph Gordon Levitt. Yeah. Which uh, have you seen it? Yes, I Okay, have. Yeah, yeah. It's I think like the first time I saw that, I watched it right before The Last Jedi came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wasn't expecting it to be what it was. Like mm. this kid's in high school and the dialogue it could it could be written for like forty year old right. detectives and and <laughs> you know, murderers. Um but again, it's a mystery, and I think Ryan Johnson really excels in this in this realm of writing great dialogue. Right, um, and he did it again with *Knives Out*, he which certainly just did. came out. But *Brick* was made on a on half a million dollars. Like, yeah, that's, that's crazy. And you know, you
1: think like anybody listening that thinks like you know, ha- half a million dollars, a million dollars, two million, four million—these are still exorbitant amount of money. Sure. Yeah. But w- I, a lot of people don't think about the cost of a film and and how much like half a million dollars is nothing when you think about all the people you have to pay all the equipment you have to get all the location scouting you have to do and that's not even taking into consideration like an advertising budget and getting the word out there about your movie so I mean this is you're, you're basically making it on no money at all and and hoping that it works out and in Ryan Johnson's case it's so nice that it did because um, I think that opened more doors for him as far as the the movies he can make because um, he made Looper a couple years ago. Yeah. Well, a few years ago now. <laughs> it came out a while ago um, with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and it just kind of shows like that creativity he has. Um, and that's another nice thing about you know sort of shoestring budget filmmaking is you kind of show off what you can do with only a little money and then studios start to take notice and say, okay, well, what if we gave you more money and, and see you know what to do with this? Like, Get out. We see Jordan Peele just knock it out of the park with that yeah. with his d- directorial debut, and then he follows it up with Us. Yeah. Um. And you know, he now he has Monkey Paul Productions, and and Bloomhouse is so excited to have this partnership with a filmmaker like Jordan Peele. Um. He was handed you know the Twilight Zone reboot. Like, it's
0: pretty cool to think about like what can come from a small budget. Absolutely. Independent film. Yeah. And I think for for directors, I think it's really important to kind of start out that way too. Because yeah. you are forced to really think outside the box, like yeah. you were saying earlier. And then when you're given a bigger budget, you can get movies like us. You right. know what I mean? Um Taiko Watiti is another director who started out making really small yeah. budget films like The Hunt for the Wilder people. Mm-hmm. I remember an interview when Thor Ragnarok was making the rounds and they were doing the press for that. He said that You know, he went from making uh, Hunt for the Wilder People where he was, like, cutting fruit and cheese for people on set to having, like, a full catering team on Thor Ragnarok, which is just, you know, the luxury that comes with it, too. Um, Yeah, and he had
1: um, What We Do in the Shadows as well, which is found footage. It's only a few characters taking place in a house. Like, very low budget, but still, you know, so funny, so great, Um, and super creative. Like, you think... If you think about making a what we do in the shadows for anybody who hasn't um, seen it is a, a found footage movie about um, a group of vampires living <laughs> together in a house. Um, it's hilarious. It's Taika y t v with vampires. Yeah, basically, Taika does <laughs> such a good job, um, and I think that it's more on people's radar now yeah. um, after Ragnarok and whatnot. But um, when you think of making a, a movie with like vampires or a monster movie, you you kind of think of like heavy effects work and, and things like that. But it's such an effective communication of who these vampires are. And it's so funny. And you never for a second believe they aren't vampires. And there's a scene where they encounter a group of uh, werewolves. Um, and they're just like going back and forth with the dialogue. but And the, the werewolves are in their human form and they're sort of howling. But again, speaking to the creativity, like this is such a creative way of communicating who these characters are um, and what they're supposed to be without necessarily having to to show people it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, low budget filmmaking is really great. Definitely support them when they come out. Yeah, for sure. Um, And, you know, they're important. Um, We don't need all of the movies to be made with huge budgets, right? Um, So moving on into Knives Out, we mentioned Ryan Johnson a few minutes ago. Um, this was directed and written by him uh, this is a star-studded cast yeah I mean, daniel craig chris evans anna de jamie lee curtis tony collette just to name a few um and yeah this is we both saw it this is yes. a great movie yeah this is phenomenal i thought
1: to myself after it ended that it could be my favorite movie of the year um so good speaking of that star-studded cast like this is how you use a star-studded cast. Yeah. Everybody, I mean, feels like they're having the time of their lives making this movie. Um, everybody has their distinct like character, um, and it it really does feel like uh, a game of Clue in that sense. Like everybody has their thing. Like Tony Collette is the the beauty guru that is kind of a fraud. Mm-hmm. And Michael Shannon owns the publishing company that his father – well, helps run the publishing company that uh, his father's books are published on. And he feels like he's living in his father's shadow and doesn't really know, you know, what he's doing. Um, Chris Evans is so good in this movie. Um, he's the the patriarch of the family's grandson. Um, he goes by Ransom. Yep. And uh, he's just kind of like the typical, like, jerk, like doesn't really have anything going for him, but he's still rich because of the family money. Um, So he's just kind of like living his life the way he wants to live it with no cares and no responsibilities. Like everybody has such a great distinct character and everybody's really good in this movie.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Before we get into plot, I just wanted to Mm -hmm. talk. We mentioned kind of off camera about how some of these actors are really playing against their type. Yeah. Um, Like Daniel Craig. He's, he's James Bond, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and we see him play this really funny, yeah. over-the-top, southern, eccentric uh, investigator, private detective? Yeah, is that what yeah, he is? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Um, Benoit Blanc. Benoit Blanc, yeah. And he totally carries the film, as does everyone else. Yeah. It's such an ensemble uh, movie, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone really works together in every scene. Um, and I think that's why it is so effective. Yeah, it's um, so nice when you have an ensemble cast like that where yeah. everybody still has their moments yeah. to shine. Like
1: uh, towards the beginning of the movie, after the, um, the father of the family, played by Christopher Plummer, um, is found dead, every member of the family kind of gets interviewed um, by mostly by Lakeith Stanfield, who, who's a member of the police department, um, with Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc sitting in the background and kind of listening in. Um, but that's such an effective way to introduce us to who these characters are and allow everybody to get their own like individual moments so then when the film is like playing with this big cast and everybody's sort of in scenes together you know exactly who Tony Collette is and you know exactly who Jamie Lee Curtis is Um, and that's so it it just goes to show that that Ryan Johnson really knows what he's doing Um, I know that Agatha Christie murder mysteries these these types of stories have really been a big influence on him And have really inspired him and it feels like such a love letter to that But also its own thing which is a hard balance to strike.
0: Yeah, definitely And um, we should probably give a little spoiler warning for sure because we're about to get into spoilers So if you haven't seen knives out definitely definitely go out and see it. It's worth a watch go with a crowd bring your family It's it's a lot of fun Um, but in that first in the first few minutes of the film, like mm-hmm. you were just mentioning, we get to see um, every character introduced. Yeah. And I love that we get all of their accounts of the night before yes. leading yeah. up to the death of Harlan Thrombey. Um And you kind of really don't know because everyone has something to yeah. lose, right? Yes. Yeah. Like, so everyone has a reason to lie. And I think that was really interesting and really well executed that no one is innocent. Yeah, you know it's so mean?
1: good. And that's such like the, the game of clue like yeah. aspect of the movie where, you know... Um, Tony Colette's beauty guru is <laughs> um, sort of double dipping from the the family money and and paying for her daughter's college and also taking money for herself. Um, Michael Shannon is uh, you know about to lose the publishing company. Um, it's it just so many things like everybody sort of has effective motive, but it's interesting because the death initially of Harlan Thrombey, the death is uh, thought of as a suicide. Um, and Lakeith Stanfield's police officer is kind of like going through these motives, at, but because of the way that the accounts are given, um, nobody sort of seems like a suspect until Benoit Blanc kind of breaks it down yeah. and shows why everybody has clear motive to, to do this.
0: Yeah, I love that Benoit Blanc, too, in, in that first, those first couple of scenes, he's just silent in the background, yeah. and every time he hears a lie, he presses yeah. the piano. That was so cool. Um, but Lakeith Stanfield's character in the film, from the get-go, is convinced that this is open mm. and shut, this is a suicide, um, but yeah, it's really, it was interesting to see how they kind of unfolded that, oh no, there's more, there's more to this. Yeah. Um, Anna D'Armas' character in the film, um, she plays, uh, sort of the, the housekeeper. Mm, yeah, the, uh, the, the, the family. nurse. The nurse, the I'm nurse. sorry, yeah. yeah. The, ooh. Um, yeah, yeah she's Holland Thromby's nurse. Yeah. She's his best friend, um and i really like that window too into yeah. harlan Thrombey's character yeah, because sure. i think that was a heartbreaking um death really that yeah. he didn't know that he wasn't poisoned yeah it's so no.
1: interesting there's a there a great moment in the the film when the family sort of all gathers for the will reading yeah. um and you find out that all of harlan Thrombey's fortune is going to anna D'Armas' character um marta and it's so fascinating because it You know, you think of, like, family and the the money would go to the family. But it really makes sense when you get this insight into Harlan Thrombey's character that this is sort of the one person that genuinely cared about him. Like, you see everybody's relationship with their father or grandfather in some cases in this movie. um, And they're all, like, strained and kind of abusive in a sense, really taking advantage of him. And they've kind of gotten, like, everything they could possibly need from him already and they just like keep sort of bleeding him dry in this sense um and marta is the one person in his life that really doesn't care about the money doesn't care about who he is in that sense and just truly enjoys him as a person and as a friend as a person and it's so interesting the way they display that grief because it feels like she's the only one that is genuinely grieving throughout the the first bit of the movie
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's um, really interesting the way that we see his character, that arc of deciding that he's going to cut off all of his children, you know, and for good reason, too, because like you said, they're all kind of like the villains of the film, Um, but yeah, I just keep thinking about when they realize that that Ransom switched the bottles, Mm -hmm. that Marta really did do it correctly, she had the right um, medicine for him, um, and it wasn 't morphine, yes, <laughs> like a
1: hundred milligrams <laughs> of, of morphine she thought she injected into him when the the correct dosage was three, yeah, um, so she believes that he has ten minutes to live, yeah. so it is actually a suicide, yeah. um, I thought that was such a fun twist, yeah, uh, because the whole time you 're sort of like thinking that it 's a murder, and we sort of discussed this off camera that. Really, like, halfway through the film, you kind of get this scene of what happened, uh, at least what Marta thinks happened. Um, So she thinks she injected Harlan with 100 milligrams of morphine. Um, She tells him that he may die, like, he's going to die in in 10 minutes. Um, So he decides to sort of spin this web, gives her, you know, instructions on what to do to make it seem like somebody else killed him. So that she doesn't go down for this, and the like you said, she didn't actually give him the morphine, um, and he does in fact commit suicide uh, unnecessarily because he would have lived if she could have called an ambulance like she wanted to. Right. Um, so that's the kind of like one of the the twists of the knife um, that you get in the plot where it really is a suicide. You're, you're wondering, you're going into the movie thinking, who murdered Harlan Thromby? Um, and the answer is that nobody did. He killed himself. And that was something that I really wasn't expecting.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it was really interesting to see, like, okay, so he didn't kill himself. Mm-hmm. Then who did orchestrate all of this? Right. And did you think it was Ransom?
1: No. No. So, like, I there's a... After the will reading and after Marta gets, you know, kind of knows that she's getting all the money and stuff, Ransom takes her away and sort of goes through um, how to beat this. He He gets... You know her version of the events um and sort of like tries to formulate a plan like okay how are we gonna do this and I I bought it me too like I I bought his interactions with her um it made perfect sense I you know in that moment I kind of just thought oh well okay he's just being manipulative this is kind of his character um he's you know figuring this out for himself and it makes sense because in the will reading scene um Ransom is, you know, kind of laughing at the fact that none of his family members are getting anything. Yeah. Um, so that moment makes sense when he's trying to help Marta because it just seems like, okay, he's he's just trying to stick it to his family again um, and make sure they still don't get anything.
0: Right, absolutely. Yeah, and I think I agree with you. I really bought all their interactions. Yeah. I mean, right after the will reading when the family really turns on marta you mm. know they go from saying like oh we really wanted you at the funeral yeah. don't worry we'll we'll give you money right. we'll, we'll support you and then immediately they 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 turn on her and yeah. they snap there and, were so
1: many great like little yeah. character moments like that yeah. like um i think that at le- maybe four characters say to marta um we really wanted you at the funeral. I was outvoted. Um, So you're kind of- we consider you a part of this family? Yeah, Yeah. so you're kind of like, okay, well, clearly nobody actually wanted her at the funeral. Like, nobody outvoted anybody. Um, And each time a different character starts describing Marta, Mm -hmm. they say that her family is from a different country. (laughs) Um, So that, it's such a good portrayal of like an out-of-touch, like
0: old money family that has never really like- wanted for anything yeah and the thing about marta in this film is that she is the heart of the film i would say marta and Harlan thrombie yeah but specifically marta uh she is the only good person here yeah and that's what uh benoit blanc says at the end of the film that like you're a good person you know and i think that that's to me also kind of heartbreaking too that she's there for this family and that she probably would do anything for them right and they can just turn on her in an instant, yeah. You know, all the time, it's all about money. Um, yeah, uh, Chris Evans. Chris Evans having the so time good in this of movie. his life yeah. in this in this role. Yeah. we mentioned that it wasn't really so much of a, a play against type for him because mm-hmm. he's played kind of that jerk before yeah. in other films. But I would say that we, we've gotten so accustomed to right, seeing right. him as, as Captain America now. Um, and he's done some other things too, like Gifted, but mm-hmm. that was kind of a drama and he was still like the good guy. Yeah, Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer, like. yeah. Um, he directed a film too in the yeah. meantime, a romantic Comedy, mm-hmm. before we go. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, so this was interesting to see him kind of go back and, and yeah, play it's, this character. It's
1: cool too because, you know, I remember leading up to like Infinity War and, and Endgame, every interview with Chris Evans kind of seemed like, like, I love playing Cap, and, and this is great, but I want to do more things. Yeah. And this movie just kind of, like, flat-out shows, like, this is why. Like, he he doesn't have to be limited to to one thing in people's mind to, you know, sort of. And I know he wants to direct more um, and wants to stretch out. And, like, I can't imagine, like, not getting him as this character. <laughs> He's so good. He's so much fun. Um, and he has some complexities to him. Yeah. He's the jerk, but he kind of, in the end, um, is the one that sort of orchestrated this this whole plan to, you know, once he finds out that he's not getting any inheritance, um, so he's kind of like a diabolical mastermind on top of, like, being this jerk that, that people kind of think doesn't know a thing and, and just only cares about himself, uh, figures out this whole system, and then in the end gets outplayed um because of kindness i i think that's so good like you know the it's a weird movie to think about like the good guys winning yeah. at the end but the the best character like you were saying the heart of the movie ends up with the happy ending
0: yeah definitely i think that ending shot of marta standing yeah. on the balcony looking down at the family is Probably one of the best shots of the year. Yeah, you know? for sure. And so many films this year and a lot of media that's coming out is all about love. Yeah. I mean, we mentioned some other ones like Ford v. Ferrari and, mm. and Jojo Rabbit. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that, movies like that are all made and about love. Yeah. Um, another thing that I think is shaping up that way is The Mandalorian yep. on Disney+. Plus. Um, what do you think of the first four episodes? I love The Mandalorian. <laughs> um, so I, I've...
1: Now that we're 4 episodes in, which is the the halfway mark of the season, um I've seen some people say they feel like not a lot has happened so far. I've seen some complaints that people can't figure out what the plot is, but I don't feel that at all. Yeah. Um it's really good as a Star Wars property and it's really good on its own like The Mandalorian is is shaping up to be such an interesting character um because when you think of Star Wars bounty hunters, especially, like, in the main series films, you don't really get a a sense of, like, I don't know, like, like a heart in them. Right. Um, It's, they're they're cold, they're ruthless. Like, you know, Boba Fett doesn't really have a character in the original trilogy. Um, He's just there as a bounty hunter. There's there's not really any complexity to him as he's originally portrayed. Um, And then the prequels decide to introduce Jango Fett, um, his father, and kind of give Boba's backstory, which adds to to who his character is, um, but you just see how cold bounty hunters typically are. Like Django Fett in the beginning of Attack of the Clones, sends a different bounty hunter, Zam Vessel, um, on this mission to to kill Senator Amidala, and then when he's about to be given up, he just kills her with no remorse. Um, so that's typically the bounty hunter we see. So I love turning that on its head with yeah. this Mandalorian yeah um, who like time and time again has kind of like said that he lives by this code and has to do certain things
0: and then turns away from it because of his heart and who he is right, right. suddenly, a child comes yeah, into his life his morality and, and now he's now he's on the run, yeah, you know, and I think that's so interesting. and I totally agree with you about the Mandalorian as a character mm. and I love that in these first four episodes. We still we don't know a whole lot about him, but at the same time we do. Yeah you know, and we're so invested in him. Yeah. Um episode four, which is the most recent episode, we see his helmet come off. We don't see his face, but still that's a big character Mm -hmm. moment to me. Um and I love everything they did on the most recent planet, which does not have a name. I don't believe so. If it does, I can't remember it. Yeah. Um I really like this episode directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah. Um done really well. Um and we just Baby Yoda, the child, whatever you want to call him or her, it's so cute. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. Just the production design of the show is is so impressive. Every episode is just bleeding with beauty. Right. And and the score is really great. Yeah, done
1: by Ludwig Göransson, who did Black Panther. Um, that score is phenomenal. Yeah, it's such a good job. And yeah, you know the child, it's so good. Such a great like design and such a great surprise for this show. Um, which has really been, I don't know what I expected out of The Mandalorian, but I feel like what we've gotten isn't what I expected. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm, I'm really loving it. Yeah. Um, they've done the same fake-out <laughs> <laughs> child death twice now. Yep. Because you hear blaster fire and you don't necessarily see where it went. But the the last time you see a blaster pointed, it's at the child. They've done that same fake-out death moment twice, <laughs> and it has gotten me both times, me too. which is crazy. Like, And and you don't think about necessarily them killing off this character, but at the same time, like, the season has been wrapped, and Disney, I mean, I can only assume, knew that people would kind of fall in love with the child, but I don't know that they'd know it would be this popular. Yeah. So you don't know if it could end up, like, dying or... or you know, because we haven't seen it in the sequel trilogy yet, right. and you kind of find out that the child is Force-sensitive, um, is clearly being targeted by people, clearly has some sort of significance that we don't yet know about, whether it's a clone, what, you know, right. we don't know. Yeah. So
0: I'm nervous. I don't want to lose it. No, neither <laughs> do I. don't want to lie. lose the child. Yeah, and I totally agree with you about not really knowing the child's fate, because yeah. For a second, too, in episode four, I was thinking, oh, he is going to leave. Yeah, yeah, same, (laughs) yes. Okay, goodbye. Um, And I wasn't ready for that, you know. Um, But another thing I wanted to mention about the Mandalorian specifically is that he feels so vulnerable. He gets beat up in this show, and I love that. I love that he's not invincible, you know. That makes him such, like, more of a compelling character and a protagonist, too. And I feel like I'm always rooting for him because of that, because he is so, you know— breakable yeah I
1: completely agree they, they they've made they found a way to make him so likable and and sort of add to the complexities with yeah. like we talked about with this character with the morality and I mean he you know has to sort of turn turn in the child um for the bounty but then doubles back and and takes it back and you know is chopping down his fellow bounty hunters to to protect yeah. this kid that he has um another interesting thing about the Mandalorian that I've been enjoying actually is the weekly episode release. Yeah. Um, I didn't think I would. I was pretty upset when Disney Plus launched, and I I knew that I wasn't going to be able to watch the whole thing right away because I just wanted to. Mm -hmm. And The Mandalorian's episodes are 30 to 40 minutes um, for each episode. So when I watched that, first episode all I wanted was more I wanted to watch the entire series right there but the way they've been able to sustain excitement and discussion and conversation about the show through these weekly releases I think has been so brilliant yeah um and it's something that I didn't realize I was missing um because Netflix has you know the binge and and that's how I've consumed TV for so long now that going back to like appointment-based television and sort of knowing, like, okay, every Friday night I get to watch The Mandalorian, I get to look forward to this new episode, um, has been such an underrated part of it, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think Disney has a real hit on their hands yeah. here with The Mandalorian. Honestly, for me, it's a contender for, like, best show on TV, at yeah. least currently. Yeah. Um, I think Dave Filoni and John Favreau are doing a great job as the, as the showrunners. Um, and Dave Filonia, this is his directorial debut with live action. Yeah. And there's so many other great directors on this season: Deborah Chow, yeah. Bryce, Dallas, Bryce Howard, Dallas Howard, as we mentioned. just mentioned. Yeah. Taika Waititi has an episode in this yeah. season. Um, so, and there's so much to look forward to with four episodes left. So, really interested to see where this goes and yeah. revisit this topic. And I know they they have confirmed a, a season two.
1: Yeah. Um. So we we sort of feel safe about the Mandalorian's right. fate. Um, we still don't know how the plot is going to wrap up, but I think it's just been so encouraging um, for other Star Wars properties that are going to hit Disney Plus yeah. to see like, you know, they're really committing to to making this as good a product as possible. Um, and I think that, you know we got an e- episode three was directed by Deborah Chow. She's directing all the episodes of Kenobi. And you kind of see like, okay, here's her work on Star Wars. You know, you love it. Now mm-hmm. we can watch Kenobi with Ewan, who you also know you love. So like, it just has served to get me, to, to keep me excited about these new Star Wars properties that are going to pop up on Disney+. Plus. And it came out at sort of the perfect time because you have the Mandalorian and you have Jedi Fallen Order and Rise of Skywalker comes out towards the end of the month. So Disney did a really good job of sort of like Making this like a couple month long process of getting really excited about Star Wars And I don't necessarily think they needed that. I think that people are going to get excited about Star Wars no matter what anybody says Um, But I think it's been a very concerted effort. Galaxy's Edge opened up very recently too um, in Disneyland and, and Disney World in Orlando Um, I think they've been doing a really good job of, you know, keeping Star Wars in the zeitgeist, keeping everybody talking about Star Wars. And I think that's probably going to peak with Rise of Skywalker. Yeah.
0: God, you said Rise of Skywalker comes out towards the end of this month. My heart dropped. Yeah. (laughs) Um, All right. So that wraps up Episode 8. Thank you for listening and thank you for watching. You can uh, find us on Spotify, on YouTube, anywhere you get your podcasts at Chatting Cinema. Um, I'm Gianni. I'm Flynn. Thank you so
1: much for watching. Thank you, as always, to SSTV for allowing us to use the equipment, and we'll see you on the next episode.